Hello, hello. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is Kelly, and I helped start this church. Booyah. Um, I don't have fancy titles, so I like to say that. So, the weekend, Stranger Things 2 came out. I forced Steve to binge watch it with me in three days. Um, I won't spoil it, though I feel powerful. You could seriously spoil it for some of you guys. Although I'm sure if you're like a big fan, you've probably already watched it, so no power left. But, okay, I don't like scary things, but I like the show. Uh, I think it was because in the first series, the characters, I mean, the kids are so cute, the actors are so good, the characters were so well written. And then in the second series, they just drew me in even more, and you found deeper things about the characters, but they used a plot device that you probably see in a lot of action movies. So think Star Wars, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, we recently watched, and they did this too. So in the first original, there's a problem, right? You have a group of people coming together. They start to figure out, oh, here's your weaknesses, here's your strengths. We gotta figure out how to work together to solve this problem. But in the sequel, there ends up being little side plots. You know what I'm saying? They kind of pair off on these little adventures. These two don't really like each other, but now they're forced to work together. These two over here suddenly are like, oh, we have to trust each other and learn something about each other, right? Do you, can you think of movies and TV shows where this happens? So our scripture today is going to be like a sequel. Last week, we were looking at the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and the first 17 verses were about the church community looking at them as a whole, right? They're supposed to be, maybe their plot line is, they need to be different from the culture. How do you do that? Well, Paul had listed some vices that they were dealing with, some virtues that they needed to start doing. So they had to figure out their strengths and weaknesses, come together to work as a team, right? So now, starting in verse 18, we're going to look at today, they're gonna, we're going to pair off. We're going to look a little more narrow at specific pairs of relationships and how they are now supposed to act toward one another. So, if you want to turn to Colossians 3 in the Pew Bible, it's page 834, or on your smart device. And while you're doing that, we'll talk about, oh, our series is Why Jesus Wins. Um, we'll talk about, a little bit about this section Apparently, I'm going to hit it wrong. Okay, I have it out of order. Okay, this section of Colossians may look familiar because we've seen it in some other letters from Paul. Uh, in fact, last year, we were studying through Ephesians, and we had a similar setting where they were talking about things that go on in the household and the relationships there. And last year, I got to preach about that, so it's a little bit of a remix here. Um, these were called household codes, kind of generally. The Greco-Romans were especially focused on the household because they saw the house as a microcosm of the state. So if they could give you guidelines for getting your home in order, then they felt like, great, all the government, all the people will have order, right? You can see this back from Aristotle. In politics, he wrote, the investigation of everything should begin with the household's smallest parts. And the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We ought, therefore, to examine the proper constitution and character of these three relationships. Spoiler alert, 
Those are the three relationships we're going to look at today. Because Paul, inspired by the Spirit, was trying to take the cultural norms of the day and elevate them. Taking these same three relationships and looking at the different pairs, but challenging them to be better. And as we said, we're tied to the previous section because all the things that he just talked about in Colossians, if you look back up in the, the first 17 verses, now he wants to apply in the home, how to live it out. So we want to look at our first pair, and Kim's going to read for us. If you could read, please, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. Just the, you're good, you're good. Wives and husbands, that's our first pair, wives and husbands. Now, as I said, I spoke on this at length in a whole entire sermon about it last year, so you can go back if you want to go more in depth. I want to look at something a little different today. First, I want to look at the word that Paul uses when he speaks to wives. He says, submit. Now, he doesn't speak in the way that others, contemporaries of his day did. Josephus called wives inferior. <laughs> that feels good. Um, Philo says that wives were like servants. So, you know, loving them. But Paul used different words. He did not use the Greek word hypoqual. I'm going to mess that up. Obedience. He used hypotasso, submission. Now, this indicates a choice. Wives were being asked to choose to submit. It kind of implies there for me that they had the ability to lead in this situation. And maybe even in their culture, there was plenty of reasons that wives would rather not submit. And in the church, they just found out that they're all equal. They're all Christians. They're all equal in Christ. So why? What is, what's going on here? But they're being asked to react differently and to do their part in the harmonious union in the household as fitting for the Lord, is what Paul indicates here. Make this choice to honor someone greater than yourself. On the flip side, Paul's request to husbands was, do your part too and do better. A higher standard is set here. He had just talked about telling all the Christians in the church in Colossae, you need to put on love. You need to have kindness and humility and compassion and forgiveness, but above all these, put on agape love. So why bring it up again here? Because husbands in that time often led their household with a heavy hand. And so he was asking the Christian husbands, be better. You can still be a wonderful husband, a wonderful man, and still show agape love. That does not take away from you. It doesn't hurt you at all. That love is modeled on Christ's love. And if we see, Christ had all the power, but he never wielded it harshly. He lived in love, so much so that he died for us. And that is the example being set for the husbands. Now, as we noted before, in this scripture, this is about wives and husbands in a committed covenant relationship. This is not all women, all men. That's not what these words are written to, every woman, every man, submit, that kind of thing. Later in Colossians 4.15, we're going to see that Paul sent greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. This implied that she was a patroness and a leader of a house church. 
Maybe she was widowed, maybe she had never been married, but she was the head of her household and her church. So one scholar, Gordon V., asked, how would she have interpreted these words about a household? She did not have a husband to submit to. Therefore, even the household codes of that day had to be adjusted and looked at differently per household. Let's go ahead and look next at our second pair. Verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. I was surprised to learn that children in this context might actually not just be little kids that we could envision, but young adults in the household because they lived with their families longer. So as you saw the spoiler already, I just envisioned this as Matthew McConaughey and failure to launch, right? Doesn't want to leave, doesn't want to leave home for independence. Now, this, these words then were to those children, even if they're older children, adult children, saying, if you're in this household, you still need to come under the authority of those who are managing the household, which is the fathers, the parents. And even though you're in this church and you are becoming mature in Christ, you're still submitting, obeying, if you're still under the authority of this household. But the difference is that Paul is speaking to children at all. That wasn't a thing in society. There was a certain discarding of children in that day. They didn't lift them up um, as we might do today. So for Paul to talk to them, it was showing that he saw them And God saw them as active participants in the household and in the church. And this was pleasing to the Lord. Now I want to look at the other side here. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Now, we see that there are not a lot of details that we know about how maybe children were disciplined in the home. But we assume it was for helping them learn to obey, as children need to do. But this was, and bitter is more about aggravating or stirring up, going beyond what is typical in a disciplined situation. Because he didn't want children to be discouraged. Now, for me, when I read the word discouraged, I just think of this. Wait a minute. This isn't my world. Disappointed! I don't know if you guys have ever seen that meme, but Steve is obsessed with that clip, so this is, this is an honor of him, and we'll see if he listens to the sermon that he'll get his, his fun. This is a really poorly acted scene where, you know, when you feel disappointed, just scream it, disappointed! Apparently he was honoring Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda, but... That's a story I had to dig into, you know, on my rabbit trail of working on my sermon. But, so that's how I kind of take the word discouraged. I don't think it's a great translation because if you look into it, the same word that's used here is used to describe Hannah in the Old Testament. And I don't know if you know her story, but Hannah could not have children for many, many years. And she would go and pray at the temple. And every year they said that there would be a sacrifice made so that she could ask the Lord, please, I would like a child. 
and she would come away discouraged. This same word used here. That's a different feeling, isn't it? That heavy heartache, that longing, and when your entire spirit is just distraught. This is the kind of discouragement that a parent can have on children. Parents have this power, this authority, and they can either build up future adults or they can hinder. And I think we all know we've seen people or maybe we've experienced it ourselves where it's hard to become everything you want to be, maybe because of some things stuck in your mind and your hearts from the parents and the way you were raised. So these parents here in the church are being saying, live out all those things, that agape love, so that you can raise your children to live it out as well, Christ-like love. Let's look at our third pair. We're going to go from verse 22 and go through chapter 4, verse 1, where the section ends, please. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. One more verse, please. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so we've heard that the slavery situation in the Roman culture was different than perhaps our American slavery history that we know in our country. There was three ways you could become a slave. It wasn't based on how you looked or necessarily where you were from, except if you were captured in a war. That was the one thing. People went to battle with one another. They would take the losers as slaves. And you could be born into slavery, or you could have slavery as your punishment. If you've done a crime, um, if there's some legal reason you owe money, there's, some, there's several situations where being a slave was your punishment given. Now, there's different kinds of slaves. There was household slaves. Um, they might take care of the children, cook. There were imperial public slaves, slaves in urban crafts, agricultural slaves. Slaves could own other slaves, and slaves could be freed at any time. In fact, there was noted some slaves who had gained such skill and craftsmanship that they were chosen by their masters to be free so that they could work and earn their own living because they had gained so much skill. Now, a lot of ancient civilizations practiced slavery, and, and Rome just didn't really know how to function without them. It was kind of, I think it said maybe up to 10% of the populations were slaves. And there's so much work went on from them that they, it was hardly a thing to even consider ending that kind of situation. They just really didn't think of it. It was how their society was set up, and people didn't give a second thought. So the words here are to encourage slaves to work for the Lord, not for people. So if you're in this horrible situation, they've become Christians, they're all in this church together, and they're saying that there's neither slave nor free now in Christ. Great. 
except out there there is. So how do you function? And the encouragement here was to say, think about the Lord and try to be motivated by serving him and your awful situation. Try to think about doing things that would give him glory and maybe that that could help you persevere. You'll be rewarded, it says. Maybe not now. But it says you'll have an inheritance and that changes your status. Because if you were a slave, you couldn't inherit anything. Sons and daughters, children, that's who inherited so by using these words, saying that God has inheritance for you, he's changing your status. You're his son and daughter now. In God's eyes, you all have the rights and privileges. The other encouragement said that anyone who does wrong will be repaid, that there is no favoritism. And that could give hope because it was saying the church wasn't going to treat masters any differently. And that God was going to know and he was going to judge if you had been treated poorly. Because even in a society, yes, some slaves could be treated well, but there's still plenty of evidence that they were just as abused as we imagine slavery to entail. So I wonder how it felt for people who had slave status and master status to come and worship together in a small group like this. How would you feel toward one another? So the masters were told, you need to be right and fair. Don't be tempted to abuse your power because slaves didn't have to be treated poorly and you don't have to treat them poorly in order to be their master. You are not almighty in God's eyes because you have a master as well that you have to obey. That was the call. So the big question that I just couldn't get away from as I kept reading this is why didn't Paul say something? Why didn't he just say, slavery's bad, stop, or rise against the power? I don't know. And it's texts like these that can bring doubt, you know? But I read one thing that said he was trying to move society forward a bit, telling masters to make the system better. If you're stuck in this Roman slavery system, at least try to make the situation better for the people in your household. So maybe he, maybe he moved the bar a little bit. I don't know, maybe that's why he said more sentences to them than he did anybody else. They needed the most encouragement. And then you compare it to the book of Philemon, which Paul wrote also, and it was a letter to a slave master. And he says that he wants his friend to be freed, Onesimus. He said, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal you on the basis of love. Obviously, he didn't see slavery as a great situation. He's asking that his friend, who he got to know, be released from his slavery. I don't know. It's still hard. In my modern point of view, I still feel tension. And it's hard when other people take this text and they make an oppressive theology about it because we've seen that happen. But that is not right either. God mourned when his people were in slavery in Egypt, and he mourns today when slavery still happens. He mourns when wives are mistreated by their husbands, and he mourns when children are abused by their parents. None of the words here define God's compassionate heart because he loves everyone equally. We can't take that out of context. But we know he doesn't always resolve every situation on earth. We obviously have pain. 
We have war. We have abuse that still occurs. Yeah, the text brings up more questions than answers. But scripture, it teaches us about our salvation. It doesn't detail our modern day lives and how we should apply it all the time. God doesn't say there's no hope for tomorrow, but he says each day is going to have enough trouble of its own. He doesn't say we can't fight the system, but he doesn't list here how to do it. So I'm going to take this for the example of what it is. This was a culture that was rough toward one another. They had relationships that were not equal. They had relationships of harm, and they glorified that. And this church was being asked, do better. I think in any of our situations, that's what we can do. We can do better. Because you know what else I see? I do see that everyone in this text was treated as valuable. And each of these pairs, there were people in them that were discarded in society. Wives, children, slaves were given a voice here. They were spoken to because Jesus is for them too. They were given words in this letter to the church. They were given a task to do. Because Christ reigns over all, and everyone was told, do this as fitting for the Lord, as pleasing for the Lord, as if you are honoring the Lord and not people. I really like the way it's summed up in the commentary by Nijay Gupta. The lasting message of the household code is that the home should be a place where Christ reigns centrally and clearly. Christ must be Lord of the household, the one to whom each member, whatever role given, is accountable. And when I looked at this, I kept having the same feeling that each of these pairs were being asked to be vulnerable. They were being asked to go to a fallible human being and place trust in their hands. And that exposed them. There was the possibility of being hurt. They were asked to take down some defenses. That's raw, that's vulnerable. And the less noticed members of each relationship, the wives, the children, the slaves, they were asked to trust that the husbands, that the fathers, that the masters would do what is fair and what is agape love. And those who had more standing in society were asked to be vulnerable and go against the culture and to show that love. And then everyone could trust that they would be respected, loved, and heard. We keep talking about why Jesus wins in our series on Colossians. And I think he wins because he demonstrates the very thing he's asking of others. Jesus was vulnerable. Think about it. He was part of a child-father pair, even on earth. He came as the God of heaven to earth as a baby. How vulnerable is that? And we read about when he was a child at age 12 and he was in the temple and he probably knew way more scripture and understood than his parents. But we have an example that he obeyed them, just like Colossians was telling the children of that church. And 
He was a master. He was overseeing a group of disciples, yet look how vulnerable he was to them. He was open with them. He served them. He allowed one of them to betray him because that led to his sacrifice. So Jesus wins because he changed the culture of his day, and he never asks us to do something he hasn't done. So we're asked to be vulnerable. And if you look around our culture today, all we see week after week in the news is more people, examples, hidden examples of people who've abused their power, abused the trust of other people, and it's scary. It doesn't make us want to be vulnerable with each other. Especially if you're in the demographic of less than in society and in any way, shape, or form, you don't want to be vulnerable. But even if you have the power, there's vulnerability there that would make them afraid to, to look like less than, right? So there's people on both sides who are afraid to be vulnerable. Now, I don't think it's asking for us to be vulnerable with every single person in the world. Jesus said to be wise. He said to be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. But I feel like if we look at this, scripture. There are in committed relationships, and that's where they're being asked to be vulnerable. So I want to challenge us. Find someone, at least one person, maybe more. A friendship, maybe it's a family member, a loved one, where you can trust that person, and you can begin to be vulnerable. God says that this honors him in some way, Somehow we learn about one another and we learn about him when we attempt to be vulnerable in our relationships. And everything he asks us to do are for his good so we can trust that this is something that we can gain from. He's placed us on the earth not alone. We're with one another. And he wants us to be heard, to be seen, to be loved and to offer that in return. And sometimes... The best way to do that is one-on-one. -on -one. And at Echo Church, we hope that you find a place here, that we have created an atmosphere where we can be living in community and begin to be vulnerable with one another. So I think it's time for our TV movie sequel. Let's have some side adventures. So that's our challenge this week. Who can you be vulnerable with? Let's pray. God, sometimes it's easy to trust you and not as easy to trust other people because we know what people are like. We are one. We know we sin. We know we are all tempted. Tempted to put ourselves above others. And you're asking us to set aside our own fears our own concerns about what might happen, and to trust one another, especially those here in your church, God. And we pray that we might be the open people that others can learn to trust us. And that only happens in you. Our security is found in you, Lord, and the more we live like you, the more our church can look like Christ-like agape love. We lay all this before you and ask us, show us how to live 
each day a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.